from Titus chapter 2, starting with verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to re renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the chance to hear your word, to sing, to pray, to be gathered, uh, for the technology to even be able to do that remotely. God, it's a blessing to know you and even more to be known by you. God, what a privilege uh, that you would even consider us worth the effort to know us and tremendous effort that you paid in sacrificing everything for us. God, we pray that your grace would be powerfully made known to us today. God, may we soak in the, the incredible power of your grace. God, may your glory be shown in such a tremendous way today that, that we're so drawn to you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, bless these moments as we open now your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Many of you uh, are probably aware in some form or fashion of how much the past can affect the present, right? Past events, though they may be a short time ago, long time ago, past events can have a, a dramatic impact on the present. Imagine you could look back over your own life and identify uh, a few key events that make a big difference in where you are. I thought of uh, one uh, such event in my life. I was a senior in high school and I came to this uh, unknown, obscure uh, place called Wofford to uh, visit this college that nobody in my hometown had ever heard of. Frequently they would ask me, where is Wofford? And uh, I would say, yeah, they're the Terriers, so you're close, but it's Wofford. So I came to visit. I was a senior in high school and stayed with this guy named Robert. And that didn't seem weird to me. You know, I just came, you know, went where I was assigned. But came, come to find out, it was Robert's first time to ever host a student who was looking uh, to come to Wofford. So I was a senior and stayed, spent the night with him. And as we got to, to talk, uh, Wa uh, Robert, this, he was a sophomore at the time, uh, was a, a really strong Christian. And I thought, well, that's cool, you know, it's, it's Spartanburg. I didn't know how rare that, that was. Like if you just kind of played the odds uh, of students at Wofford at the time, and, and what were the chances of me getting, you know, to spend the night with somebody who's a, a strong Christian, that the odds by themselves were very low, you know. But this is incredible. First time he ever hosted a student, so I met this guy named Robert. Robert takes me to a, a birthday party that night for another strong Christian. I met 30 or 50. I don't know how many strong Christians that one night. We went to a prayer group on campus at Wofford, you know, my first night on campus. Uh, the next day I went to a class, but lunchtime rolled around. I was sold. This is where I was supposed to go to school. Now, there's a zillion other details about how that was possible, but it started with this one guy named Robert and the chance to meet him that day on campus. Now, that's important in my history for a lot of reasons. Probably the most significant that you would know about is the second day of orientation as a Wofford student. I met a girl named Amber Green, who would later become Amber Long. 
My fourth year in school, I met a campus pastor named David Fisk, who would have an incredible impact on my theology and understanding of the Bible and on which seminary I would go to, that I went to Gordon-Conwell. And that impact, of course, is, is tremendous. So I can look back at that one day, one 24-hour period on the campus of Wofford College, and one guy, Robert Harris, and see how that one moment affected so much of what's now my life today. The same is true probably for many of you, ups and downs of life, different things. You can probably pinpoint a few details in your life that have a, a, a kind of disproportionate effect on the rest of your life. You can look back on our salvation, maybe marriage, divorce, birth of a child, loss of a child, your education, a new job, moving to a city, new city, a new town, going on a mission trip, all these moments in our past that have effect today. But also equally impactful are events that are still in the future. Have you thought about this? It's not just the past that affects the present, it's also the future. So I'll use just one maybe simple common day, everyday type example. If you have a, a steady job, a job that you expect to be here tomorrow and next week and the next week, you are, that affects your life today. You are not scrambling this afternoon to go and find a way to pay the bills at the end of the week because you have a promise of an event in the future. That event is a paycheck that's coming. Now you may have a signed contract, you may have whatever else, but all at this point you have is a promise about a future event. It hasn't happened, and yet it's affecting how you live today. If you had a, a, an incredible uh, a, a retirement account that was all set up for you, or, a, or an inheritance that was guaranteed, that was this enormous amount of money that you know was going to come in the future, that would affect how you live today. It's both past events and future events that often impact the way we live today. We are going through this short New Testament letter called Titus that a guy named Paul wrote to his friend and to a fellow uh, pastor, Titus. And uh, as he's writing in this section that we just heard Amber read, he's talking about the impact of two really important events, one in the past and one still yet to come in the future. These two events in history make all the difference in the world, and we, like Titus was, we live in between these two events. If we recognize the importance of this one event in the past and another event that's to come into the future, it impacts everything about how we live today in the present. These two events, one past, one future, both of them he describes as an appearing. They are both about someone who appeared and who will appear. Verse 11, he says, uh, it gives the past one, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. And then in verse 13, he says, uh, talking about the future one, he says, We are waiting for the, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory. One past, one future, both about someone who appears. Both of these are references to the appearance of Jesus Christ. His first appearing 2,000 years ago was, makes a huge difference in our lives today. He appeared, He came to earth, He took on flesh, He lived the perfect life, He died in our place, He resurrected and then ascended back to the Father. That appearance was an appearance in the past. And He also promised that He's coming back in the future. He will appear once more. He will return and He will draw all of His people to Himself and He will set everything right in the world. He will come back. And His appearance makes an incredible difference today. So that means our lives today 
And for this whole generation, between the time Jesus came the first time and when He comes back, we are living in between the two appearings of Christ. So to help us visualize our place in history today, I have set up two lights for us. The past and the present light here. The past and the future light, I mean. The word, the word appearing, I, I, I used, you know, thinking about what that means, something to appear. The, the original word was how something was concealed and then made known. So there's a reference uh, in Acts where, where, where because of the clouds and the storm, the moon and the stars had not appeared for a long time. So like the moon appears when the cloud lifts. So that's this word here. Jesus has always been, right? But there's two moments in human history where he has and will show up in a way that gets everybody's attention, right? That makes it clear. He's always been there, but he's going to show up and has shown up in a very important way. So I think it's fair to say about these two events, that about thinking about our present life, that if our walk with the Lord is not as it should be, if we do not yet know Him, or if we have come to know Him, but yet our, our, our relationship with Him is not what it should be, I would say that what we don't know, what we don't fully understand, what hasn't landed on our hearts like it should, is one or both of the appearings of Christ. That we don't fully get it to understand what it meant for Christ to come and what it means that Christ is coming back again. So we're going to take these two appearances one at a time. Paul describes his first, this first appearance as an appearance of grace. So my first call for you today is to live in light of the grace that has come. So we'll make this our light of the grace that has come. Christ came. He appeared. It was a, it was a light for all to see. He has shone into the darkness. And because He came, we can live in light of that reality that He has come. If there's one word to describe that coming... Is that He came by grace. He came in grace. Christ is the eternal Son of the eternal Father. He was in heaven and had everything perfect and needed nothing. He does not need us. And so the very fact that He would come to earth in any shape or form was an act of grace in itself. But we all know that He didn't just come any way He wanted. You know, He, he could have come as some you know, uh, demigod, superhuman, mag magical, majestic, whatever figure that just rained down from on high. But he didn't. He came as a man, just like one of us. Amen. And he didn't just come as a fully grown man. He came to a, mother, to, a, to a woman's womb, born as a child, conceived and born. And he didn't just come to a privileged woman's womb. He came to a poor woman, a young woman, a woman uh, of no standing. And he was born not in a palace, but laid for the very first time when he was born in an animal's feeding trough. He came humbly, riding on a donkey, right? Amen. And then he came, and by grace, came not to be served, he tells us, tells us, but he came in order to serve and to give his life. Picture him the night before he died up there in the upper room with his disciples. And what does he do? He takes off his outer cloak, wraps a towel around his waist, and washes his disciples' feet. Can you imagine that? The King of glory, the one who reigns over all things, who has always been and will forever be, washing the feet of His disciples. That's, that's grace. The next day He would willingly go to a cross, crucified by far weaker men, Amen. died, into, put into a tomb, only then to show just how strong He was by grace for our sake when He resurrected on the third day. 
After 40 days of being with his disciples and appearing to many, he ascended back to the Father. And so now we await his coming. That whole event, him, his coming, the first coming of Christ, was all a display of grace. He did it out of kindness. Not kindness we deserve, but unmerited kindness. Undeserved goodness given to us. That's what grace is. Not something we deserve, but something He gave us. Verse 14 describes this act of grace when it says, He gave Himself for us. And if you could put the gospel in a a preposition, it would be here. The gospel is for us. He died in our place. That is a picture of His substitution. We deserve to be the one on the cross, but He died for us. He went where we deserve to be in order to give us where He is. He died in our place as our substitute. That's grace. That's why He came the very first time. And when He came, because of that grace, He comes and He brought salvation to all. His salvation is not limited to one gender or the other. His salvation is not limited to one race or one ethnicity or one class or one language or any of those kind of things. All different kinds of people are offered the same salvation because of Christ and what He did by grace. That verse doesn't mean that that every single person will be saved. It means that His appearing in grace showed His salvation is offered to all kinds of people so that all who call on Him will be saved. There's not a a limit. There's not not a a way that He is restricted. It's only certain kinds can come in. It's invited to all. All. It's open to all. So today we live in light of that grace. That that grace shines light forward. The, The light from the past now shines on our path today. We live in light of the grace that has come. After he describes that in verse 11, he writes in verse 12 about this present age. So what, what has happened in the past affects today and the, we li- the way we live today. It kind of reminds us of 1 John 1, 7. It says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. So the past grace that God, Jesus showed us has done a, a lot for us. One of those things is it has made it possible for us to live and do good works. Without Him, it wasn't even possible. But not only that, His grace also makes good works necessary. It makes good works necessary. Listen again to verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. If we are claiming to be Christians, and yet we are still chasing after the the ungodliness of the world and and chasing after worldly passions, then we haven't really experienced grace like we should have. That light is not really shining on our path. We're, We're blocking out what Christ has done. If we really knew this grace, then it would change change the way we live. It has to. It has to. First, verse, first word in verse 12 is training. The NIV takes it as, as teaching. Grace is our teacher. Grace is the one telling us what it looks like to follow Him. God's grace not only saves us, it trains us, it teaches us, it teaches us how to live, it teaches us what's really best. We are saved, our souls are with Him, but we are saved also from a lesser form of life. It is not Better to live like the world. Jesus has offered something better for us. He has saved us 
to a better way of living. Amen. Don't hear that as easier. Easier is not always better. We know that. But He's trained us and He's teaching us a better way to live. Romans 2, 4 says, God's kindness leads us to repentance. Amen. The grace of what He's shown us already. His grace leads us to a different way of life here and now. Verse 12 and 14 are really mirror images of each other. So, so beautifully written here. And they describe both the negative and the positive side of this. Starting with the negative, he says in verse 12, he trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That is, if we've experienced grace, we, we let go. We renounce. We defy the things of the world. We say, you, you will not take me captive anymore. I'm leaving it behind. I'm denouncing it, renouncing. I, I no longer want anything to do with that way of life. I'm fleeing a sinful lifestyle. If we have fully, if we've experienced grace, then we want to fully and completely break all ties with the worldly passions of this world. We say, I've given it up. I've relinquished it. I'm done. I don't want anything to do with it. But that's hard to do. Isn't it? It's hard to have that kind of clean break from the way the world wants us to live and tempts us to live. Verse 14 is where we find the power for that. It says, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Redeem us. Redeem is a, a word we hear in the Old Testament talking about the Israelites coming out of captivity in, in Egypt. They were slaves. And he says, well, I have redeemed you out of slavery. They are no longer slaves. They have been set free. In the Old Testament, as, as hard as it was to get the people of Israel out of Egypt, and if you know that story, it took ten plagues and crossing a Red Sea, and all, it was really hard to get Israel out of Egypt. You know what was even harder? It was getting Egypt out of Israel. Amen. They had a hard time living to be the people that God had already made them to be. He said, I have set you free. And yet they so often lived as captives. We have the very same problem. We are not captive to this world. We are not enslaved to our passions and desires. Our bodies do not rule over us. The temptations around us do not have the power to determine how we live. Because Jesus said so. He is redeemed. He paid the price on the cross, not just for the past sins, but for the temptations we face today. He has the power over that. He's redeemed us from lawlessness. That's what that means. He paid, yes, we talked about paying a price, but redeemed from lawlessness is about who I am today. I'm not captive. But we got to tell temptation that sometimes, don't we? Amen. We have to tell it and say, no, that's not who I am. That's not who I'm going to be anymore. It's hard sometimes to live to be who we actually are. But that's what it means to be a Christian. The light is shining on the path. We are living as God made us to be. We are living as free people, free to follow Him. God teaches us to control ourselves, control our passions. He's talking about self-control. We saw that word three times last week in the, in the passage we saw. So how important self-control is here. We get the power to do it. It's because Christ has accomplished it. Grace teaches us in how we relate to others a way that's upright, that is respectful, doing the right thing in how we relate to one another. Grace also teaches us how to relate to God, to be Godly ourselves, self-controlled, upright, godly. This is what it looks like to follow His path. Verse 14 gives us, uh, again, the power of the gospel for actually living this way. He says, we are a people of His own possession. That's beautiful. We are a people of His own possession. We are not enslaved to this world. We're not captive to this world. We don't belong to the devil. 
We don't belong to our boss. We don't belong to a job or to a bill or to an addiction to a, any kind of thing in our past. We don't belong to a problem. We belong to Jesus. He has made us His own. And when the things of this world come after us, say, no, I don't belong to you. I belong to Jesus. Exodus 19.5 says, You shall be my treasured possession among all people. Just, just picture our Heavenly Father looking at you and saying, You are my treasured possession. I value you. I treasure you. Wow. The fact that God would love us that way. Our, our identity has changed. That changes who we are. We are not who we were before. We belong to God. That's where we belong. We're not captives. We're not defined by our sins and our failures. We belong to God, and we are a people for His possession. Did you hear in any of that something we've accomplished on our own? No. It's all grace. It's all the grace of what Christ did for us shining on our path. That's what it looks like to live in light of grace. We're not earning our place. We were put here. We were brought out of captivity, captivity and put on the path by grace. And now we live it out. That light shows us where we are to live. If that's where we are, then verse 14, this is a phrase I just love. It says, we'll be zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. That's the phrase I've used in the, 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 the title for this whole series in Titus, that sound doctrine and zealous for good works. Those are tied so well together. Here's where I got that phrase, zealous for good work. Enthusiastic, passionate, fervent, dedicated, fanatical, impassioned for good works. Wow. All kinds of people are passionate about all kinds of different things today, right? There's a Super Bowl today, sports, jobs, whatever, kids. We get impassioned for lots of good things. Let me ask you, are you zealous for good works? When people say he is just, whoo, he's on fire to do good things. That only comes if, if we've got grace shining, shining on our path. One of Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous writings is uh, a letter from Birmingham City Jail. If you've read that, man, it's so powerful. He has this one pas passage in there, so it's a section where he responds to people who are calling him an extremist, you know? And he at first defends himself. He says, you know, I I'm trying to, trying to walk in the middle here. I got people on one side that are just passionate, I mean, uh, are passive and saying, hey, just, just let this whole thing go. I got other people on the other side that are violent and trying to do their own thing. He's trying to do this non-violent way of resistance. He's trying to do the right thing. He says, I'm not an extremist. And then he says, uh, he writes this. He kind of reconsiders. He says, but as, but as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction for being considered an extremist. He says, was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for those that despitefully use you. He says, was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty steam. stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He says, was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. Was not John Bunyan an extremist? I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a mockery of my conscience. Was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Was not Thomas Jefferson an extremist? We shall hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be an extremist, but what kind of extremist we will be. We will be extremists. Will we be an extremist for hate? Or we will, be, will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice? 
or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? Whew. Man, that guy could write and preach. And that same question lands on us today. Are you, you're you're going to be zealous for something. You're going to be passionate about something. And if the gospel of grace has come onto your life, you'll be zealous for good works. And that's good, right? Until it's hard. Until it's challenging. Until we fail. We, we hear the gospel of grace and we hear how it's supposed to motivate us. And we come to a place and say, wait, God, wasn't I, wasn't I trying to do the right thing? Wasn't I, wasn't I following the right way? I, I, I know grace, but, but here I am again to the same spot. And I, and I feel like a failure. I, I'm here again. How many times have we done that, right, God? I'm here again. And we feel like a failure. You're not who you used to be, but you're not who you want to be yet. And you begin to say, what, where am I? What's going on, God? There's still room to grow. But maybe you're getting discouraged because you're not growing faster. Or you're not as far along as you, begin, as you think you should be. And as you do, you start to lose hope. And when you lose hope, it means that you've forgotten that there's another light. You've forgotten that there's another light. We're called to live in light of the grace that has come. But we're also called to live in light of the grace that will come. You see, Jesus didn't just come once. He's coming back. And when he comes back, he's putting everything the way it should be. Verse 13 says, We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as there was this critical moment in history when Christ came, the very first time in grace to pay for our sins, so there is a critical moment in human history that is still yet to come that Christ is coming back. We don't live through this life and suffer as pilgrims along the way like people who have no hope. We, we know there is a light still to come. And it's the same light that came the first time. Jesus Christ. Verse 13 may sound kind of wordy as you read through it, but it is a, a powerful description of what's to come. We are waiting on the appearance of the glory of God. So God the Father will display His glory in a way that's unlike anything we have seen in our lifetimes. And this glory, when it shines out, when it displays itself, when God displays it, the way He will display His glory, the way the Father displays His glory, is by sending His Son. If there was one word to describe His first coming, it's, it's that He came by grace, by grace. The second time when He comes, the one word to describe it is He's coming to display glory. We live in between grace and and glory. That's what shines light on our path. That's what it means to live as Christians. We are living between grace and glory. If we ever start losing hope, it's because we're not living in light of His second coming, of His return that promises us about the future. One pastor described this as living with the push and the pull of Christianity. Grace is pushing us. Grace is, is teaching us and, and guiding us. But glory is pulling us home. Glory is pulling us to who we should be. We live between the two, the grace and the glory. If we lose sight of the glory that's to come, we lose hope, we fall into sin, we begin to fail to be zealous for good works. Because we start thinking, I, I failed again. I can't do it anymore. I'm not going to make it. I, there is no hope for me. I'm just right back where I was. 
And so we just sit down and we give up. But if we know there's a light that's coming, we can have hope because we know ultimately this will work out for our good and for His glory. One British pastor, Tim Chester, he wrote this. He wrote, The attractions of this world do not gleam so brightly when compared to the treasures of the world to come. I love that. The attractions of this world do not gleam so brightly when compared to the treasures of the world to come. I'm going to put that in my language because that guy's too smart. Here's what I think that's about. I've got a gift card right now sitting in my, uh, this little drawer I have by my back door. And it's to a nice restaurant. And I'm excited about taking Amber on a date, hopefully here, you know, around Valentine's Day. We can get all the kids. With my, my mom's going to be up here. And I'm going to take Amber to this nice restaurant for a date. It's going to be great. You know what? I want you to picture that day. You know what's not going to happen before that date? If, if, I, if we get in my truck and maybe say I've got to stop by QT on the way to fill it with gas, you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going inside and buying a pretzel. You know what I mean? I'm on my way to a delicious meal that is nicer than most meals I eat and is going to be better food than I usually eat. I, many other times, I run in and grab a little. I love those pretzels. I want that day because there's something better that's to come, right? And the best part of that, remember, I'm doing it on a gift card, so it's paid for. <laughs> so I'm not going to spend the $1.99 on that pretzel that's going to fill me up with junk inside QT. You know what I, I like? the crunchy gorditos at Taco Bell, all right? But it doesn't matter how many Taco Bells are between my house and that restaurant, I'm not pulling in and spending a couple bucks on a cheap fake meat taco. Because <laughs> I've got a good meal, a delicious meal that is paid for to come. If, if we remember the light that's to come, we're not gonna play in the dirt. We're not going to fill our lives with the junk and the fake meat and pay for stuff. No, we're, we're going to live in light of the glory that's to come. We're going to live for what's still to come. Verse 13, the word he uses is wait. Wait. This is a word about anticipation. Are you, are you excited for Christ to come? Are you looking forward to the day when Jesus makes everything right once again? All the pains and the sorrows and the griefs, it's, it's all going to be taken care of. For everybody who knows Him and loves Him above everything else, that will be the most glorious day that there ever has been. We have experienced grace and that day to its fullest we will experience glory. Are you waiting for that day? Because if you're waiting for it, you'll live like it's coming. You won't blind it and block it out and say it's not happening. You'll, you'll live in anticipation of the glory that's still to come. Because it's already been paid for. It's already been paid for. You're going to glory. It can be so hard to skip the pleasures of this world when the temptations are screaming at us from all around. But if we remember glory, when Christ comes, when Christ appears, we can wait. We live here and now. We live between grace and between glory. We are pushed by the grace of Christ's first comings and we are pulled to the, by the glory of Christ's second coming. That is where we live. And it's an awesome place to live. And I'll tell you this. If that's where you live, you, you don't want to keep it to yourself, do you? Amen. It's too good. There's too much light to keep it to yourself. There's plenty of light here. So 
invite others to it. Invite others to it. When we're living in light of the grace that has come and living in light of the glory that has still yet to come, here's what I want to invite you to, what I call you to do. Invite others to the light. Invite others to the light. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Paul calls on Titus and calls on us today to teach sound doctrines. Teach about the grace that has come. Teach about the glory that's yet to come so that other people can see the light. Bring people, invite people to come, not just to church, but to the glory of God, to experience living in the light. It's too good, it's too wonderful to keep it to ourselves. Titus is this letter about how we should live, but all along he's tying sound doctrine to, to, to good works, that we're sound in doctrine and zealous for good works. And this passage, probably more than any other, ties those things closely together here in one spot. The grace of God impacts how we live today. So all who believe in Him have a transformed life. We are sustained and filled with hope of the good news of the glory that's still yet to come. There's no such thing as a worldly, passion-following, ungodly Christian. It just doesn't happen, right? If He has brought us out of death, it will transform our life. And next Sunday, we get the chance to celebrate that in a really powerful way. We're going to do a baptism here next Sunday. And this is a group of people who have walked out of darkness by the grace of God and are anticipating the glory that's yet to come. God has taken this group of people and taken their dead hearts and brought them to life. In baptism, what we're doing is we're celebrating our union with Christ. That just as Christ was up on the cross and nailed to it, and then as he, after he was killed, was buried into the ground and on the third day resurrected again, so too in the waters of baptism. People will stand in the waters. They will go under like Jesus went into the grave and come out into the newness of life like Christ was resurrected. That's what we're going to do next Sunday as we celebrate what it means to live in the newness of life because the old is gone, the new has come. God has brought us out of death and into life, out of darkness and into the light. And so as we look forward to that next Sunday, I just wonder, does anybody need to come to the light? We, we got a handful, but the, there's room in the water. There's room. I want you to know this is an opportunity before us. The sal God's salvation is offered to all. doesn't mean all will receive it. His salvation is offered to all. Do you know the truth of the gospel? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sin? Do you recognize that brokenness is not just a problem out there in the world, it's a problem in our own hearts? If so, then you'll turn and believe in Jesus, the only one who can save. You'll celebrate the grace that He has shown us, that it, in His kindness He died for you and for me. And if you know that, then it changes everything. And we can anticipate the glory that's yet to come. And it's going to be powerful. If you don't yet know Him, receive Him today. Receive Him today. Because I promise, living on the light of this path between grace and glory, there is nothing better this world can offer you. Let's pray. God, what a blessing it is to know You for who You are. What a blessing it is to receive Your grace. God, as we look to our own lives we recognize so many times we turn our backs on You. God, we, we don't live like You have changed us. We don't live like we ought. So God, we pray that once more You would renew us and restore us by Your grace so that we can follow You.
God, we look ahead to the glory that is to come. That when you send your son Jesus, everything will be made right. God, when we're tempted to give up hope, to be discouraged, to be in despair, God, we pray that you would sustain us with the right knowledge that you're coming back, that you have not left us, that we are your people, your own possession. You have redeemed us from lawlessness. You're not going to forsake us now. God, may we be sustained by your grace in anticipation of your glory. Lord, we also know that for many around us, maybe even some here today, they have not yet turned from their sins and put their faith in you. God, may you use the truth of your gospel to break hearts, to turn from sin, to trust in you. I pray that not just for an unbeliever, but for a believer. God, that we would turn from our sin, we would trust in you. If you're worshiping with us here in person or online, I invite you to take just a little moment to pray as the band begins and ask, are you living in light of grace and of glory? Are you living as one who's been redeemed out of lawlessness? Are you living like one who belongs to Christ? Or are you living chasing the worldly passions around us? Who has your heart? Lay that before God and ask, plead, forgiveness. Plead in repentance that by His grace He would change us and transform us. If you don't yet know Him, for the first time you can pray asking that Jesus would forgive and trusting that He has made a way by His death and resurrection for you to be saved. At home, you can pray that there. If you're here, you're welcome to come to the altar or come pray with me. I pray you respond as the Lord leads you. God, move in our hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray.